dangerously close. My guest today is TJ Raphael. TJ Raphael is a seasoned investigative audio journalist focusing on the intersection of health, politics, and science. So she has a 15 years of experience as a reporter, producer, and editor working with some of the world's leading podcast production houses. I kind of said that weird, but... Um... Feel free to do another take. <laughs> uh, uh, the people that listen to this already know that every time I do a bio, I'm all over the place. It's... <laughs> It's one of my, uh, it's like a signature thing of mine. Um, I love that. <laughs> but today we are talking about her hit podcast, The Pill Plot. Uh, the show was picked by Apple as one of the most loved podcasts of 2022. The Pill Plot has reached number 42 in Apple's coveted true crime charts and earned attention and acclaim from outlets like The Guardian, Vulture, Jezebel, and NPR. What's up, TJ? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank um, you so one thing I want to... Oops. One thing I want to let you know is biohack was one of the most loved of 2022, not um, the pill plot. So oh. just in, in case you do a pickup later, I want to let you know. <laughs> Even oh. though I love, I would, I wish it would have been included in this year's list, the pill plot, but it and sadly wasn't. But yeah. <laughs> well, it is on my list of one of the best podcasts that I have listened to in 2023. Although we're, this is 2024, but that's when I listened to it. So anyway. Yeah. Blah blah blah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, you know what else TJ stands for is how totally joyous I am to have you on the podcast. Um, I am really happy to be here. It's a Friday. Um, you know, it's not freezing in New York City. So, you know, we're already off to a great start for the weekend. So uh, I'm really glad to be here. And thank you for inviting me uh, on the show. Yeah, thanks. Oh, uh, same thing here in Nashville. There was an ice storm. We were basically like snowed in here and now it's like beautiful out. I'm actually going nice. to like get some outside time today because I, I can. <laughs> um, yeah. Before we get uh, super into it, I just want to say uh, I was telling you before we started recording that I am a little bit embarrassed to say this because I feel like I should have known some of the stuff. But uh, this this story about the story about how uh, the abortion pill came to America, like I didn't know practically any of this. It was all new to me. I was just like, because I know this was all like really huge news in the 90s. And it's kind of weird that like, like I never even knew the name Larry later, any of this stuff. So. Right. But, um, I, I mean, I feel actually the same exact way. Um, you know, I have covered reproductive health throughout my career um, when I was at WNYC um, working on the takeaway, which was a national news daily news show. Then I was constantly pitching stories about, you know, abortion or, you know, reproductive health, birth control, whatever. Um, and then I made an entire series about sperm and egg donation, 12 episodes. I spent five years reporting on that show. And yeah, I had still never heard this story about the, how the abortion pill came to the United States. And frankly, I'm surprised that I still am not hearing more about this particular story, given yeah. that, you know, the Supreme Court is about to decide whether the abortion pill can maintain its FDA approval. Um, and yeah, basically how I came to this story was um, I had just wrapped in, um, let's see, this was in 2022. I just wrapped production on biohack family secrets about sperm and egg donation and kind of the shady world behind that. And I was looking for my next story. And then in June of 2022, uh, the Supreme Court announced that it was overturning Roe versus Wade. And I knew I wanted my next project to be about abortion in the United States. Uh, as I mentioned, I had done, you know, segments and stuff like that uh, earlier in my career, but I'd never tackled like a full series on the subject. And so I was searching for a story. You know, the lead time for my projects is usually about a year. I usually spend around a year reporting and, and working um, to put things together. And so I, I was coming from a place of like, okay, it's June, 2022. What's gonna feel relevant in a year from now? And yeah, I started to look towards the abortion pill. I knew that the medication accounted for more than half of all pregnancy terminations nationwide, not surgery. You know, most, most people uh, in the United States, that's how they end their pregnancy. Um, so I started looking into the pill. I knew it would be the next battleground in a post-Roe era, which it did become, um, you know, a few months after I started my reporting. 
um, uh, anti-abortion group sued to remove the um, FDA approval for the abortion pill. And that, that's the case that's going to go uh, be decided by the Supreme Court now. Um, but yeah, I knew it was going to be the next big thing because of the fact that it was the way that most people ended their pregnancies. Um, and that goes from, in, you know, if you remove the FDA approval for the abortion pill, that means people in, you know, places where abortion rights are still strong, think New York, uh, you know, California, Colorado, uh, you know, Illinois, um, that means people in those states wouldn't be able to get access to that medication as well. Um, and also I knew it was going to be a big deal because in states where now abortion is banned and illegal, you know, you can ship a pill to someone and it's a yeah. lot harder to figure out if someone's having an abortion. And especially if you're a person who can't maybe drive to another state or fly to another state, that might be the only option. So I knew that this would be a big, a big uh, deal going forward. But what I found really surprised me. <laughs> I, 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 you know, never expected to find a story like this. Yeah, all of, like I'm, I am very aware of like what's happening now in in modern times. It's just uh the story of where like I, I like, to you know I don't want to sit here and you know uh, say like I think I'm an ignorant person or thing, but like I just kind of assumed that they invented uh, mifepristone. Is that how you pronounce it? Mifepristone. Yeah. I just assumed that it got in invented in a lab. And then because Roe v. Wade in the seventies, I just kind of, I just figured it was one of those things where they were like, Oh, okay, well now we have this. And I didn't know there was a battle. So I guess just going into it in, in 1992, a wealthy elderly gentleman and a young anarchist punk engaged in an international drug smuggling operation that would change America forever. But before they did that, uh, can you describe what it was like in 1991 for women's health clinics uh, dealing with anti-abortion protesters? Yeah, so in the late 80s and in the early 90s, um, there begins to be this rise of a real militant sect of the anti-abortion movement. Um, they modeled themselves off uh, after the so-called rescue movement, and they decide that they um, are going to physically blockade people from accessing abortion clinics. They want to shut down abortion nationwide, and they decide to carry out these massive protests um, in cities around the United States and, you know, where they would chain themselves to clinic doors. They would bring thousands of people into the streets to block clinic entrances and, you know, women who were trying to access the clinic would be shouted out, harassed, would have to physically move through crowds of people, um, you know, yelling things at them. And um, one of the prominent groups of this militant sect of the anti-abortion group was a group called Operation Rescue. And it was led by this man uh, named Randall Terry, who was very charismatic um, and really called people to his cause. And, you know, throughout the late 80s, they were doing, you know, these mass protests, but really the kind of crescendo moment is in 1991, when Operation Rescue carries out what it calls the Summer of Mercy. And so the Summer of Mercy is uh, a mass protest in Wichita, Kansas. It's in the heartland. It's a great place to uh, draw people from neighboring states who oppose abortion to come out into the streets. So, you know, they can hop in their car, get to Wichita pretty easily. And um, yeah, they they plan on going to Wichita for six days and they wind up being there six weeks. The city becomes overrun and they cap off this six week long campaign in, in Kansas with a 30,000 person rally that is attended by, you know, Pat Robertson, who was a darling of the evangelical right. Um, and, and some pretty major players wind up wading into um, the battles at the clinic uh, on the ground in Wichita, including Jay Sekulow, who was Donald Trump's personal lawyer and, and uh, lead attorney during his first impeachment trial. Um, and uh, currently, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts at that time, he's then Deputy Solicitor General at the Justice Department, a pretty high up position. 
Um, and he actually defends, you know, publicly on, I think it was on PBS News Hour, the, uh, you know, tactics that Operation Rescue is using. And he, you know, signs off on a brief that uh, from the Justice Department that says, you know, people have no constitutional right to enter a clinic. And so this is really the landscape that, um, you know, women and other pregnant people were facing when they would try to access reproductive health care at a clinic at this time. Um, and also what the clinic workers themselves were dealing with when they were, you know, trying to go into work every day. So it was a really, you know, scary time, I think, for, based on my interviews with people. It was frightening. Um, and it wasn't easy. These people, you know, were militant. And, you know, Randall Terry, who I mentioned earlier, you know, he said that the, you know, the national right to life, you know, they were the softies, they were the Judases of the pro-life movement, that they weren't going hard enough or strong enough. You know, I don't know many people that would think of the national right to life as an organization that's, you know, too yeah. light on abortion. Oh, yeah, uh, would, I would he, never he think did. of them as a, as, would think of them as a tolerant group of people. <laughs> yeah. So, so I get that kind of just, you know, says it all right there that, you know, um, Operation Rescue, the the so-called rescue movement, more generally, there were other groups as well, but, you know, they're, they're prepared to go extreme and really bring us into the streets at this time. Because just to begin with already, uh, surgical abortion can already be an extremely difficult experience, uh, but anti-abortionists are trying to make it impossible by uh, burning down clinics, physically blocking entrances with angry mobs, like you said, especially like in the Wichita scenario. Uh, and eventually they start assassinating doctors when you know when the violence starts to escalate. Uh, however, uh, this could all be avoided with the drug uh, Mifepristone, uh, otherwise known as RU486. That was the original name for it. Uh, legal throughout Europe and China, but still outlawed in you know what seemed to be kind of a puritanical United States mm -hmm. in the 1990s. Um, so going back to what you know, what, my little introduction with the uh, the elderly gentleman and the anarchist punk. Um, that man's name was Larry Later. He had a plan. Uh, what was Larry Later's plan to bring to first bring the pill into the country? Yeah. So I mean, Larry Later. <laughs> He seemed like he was a real interesting character. Like when I first came to the story, I was like, wow, this sounds like the like the plot to an Ocean's Eleven movie. Like it just was blowing my mind. And Larry yeah. Later would have been, you know, the George Clooney character. I mean, yeah. he was wealthy. He lived in, you know, Manhattan. I actually visited uh, the apartment that he lived in with his wife. His wife is still alive, uh, later died in 2006, like their apartment was amazing. They had original Guggenheims. Like his wife was like, oh yeah, Petty, Peggy Guggenheim gave that to us. Like when we were visiting her in Europe and I was like, I'm dead right now. Like wow. I can't believe that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's like, the, you know, he went to Horace Mann, kind of grows up in, you know, New York society. And, um, you know, he's wealthy enough that he doesn't need to actually have a job. He can devote himself to this issue full-time as an activist. And so given that he is this abortion rights activist, Betty Ferdan, who, you know, is a storied women's rights activist, she actually called Larry Later the father of the abortion rights movement. You know, if, if she was the mother or, or other women were mothers in the movement, he was, you know, the father of it. And, um, you know, he, uh, later had started out in his career um, as a journalist, and um, he then veered more into activism, and he wrote a book simply called Abortion in the 1960s, and that book was actually cited in the Roe versus Wade decision eight times. You know, Larry's book, of course, was not the, you know, entire rationale for Roe versus Wade, but it was, um, you know, certainly considered very seriously by the justices at the time. Mm -hmm. And later, uh, you know, early in his career, he writes the official biography of Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, was extremely influential in bringing the birth control pill into the United States and other kinds of contraception, like condoms, like uh, diaphragms. Um, you know, Sanger was a key ar architect uh, of overturning laws that, um, you know, prohibited those materials. And so at the end of Sanger's life, Larry goes and spends time with her in a retirement home in Arizona and, you know, details her life story. And in, in, in his series of interviews, he hears about Sanger's plot to, 
you know, in the early 1900s, overturn restrictions on access to contraceptives. Um, and, and Sanger's plot at that time, you know, involves getting a, a package of pessieres, which is like a diaphragm mailed to her from a doctor in Japan. Uh, but she wants the government to know that she's getting the, these uh, pessieres mailed to her um, so that she can intentionally be caught and then bring a case through the courts. And so, you know, flash forward to 1991, Larry, you know, the abortion pill is introduced in 1988. So by 1991, 92, you know, Larry sees that the Bush administration has put a federal ban on the drug um, in the United States. The Bush administration says, you know, no one is allowed to import it, even a small amount for personal use. You know, if you or I were to go to Germany and get some aspirin that wasn't FDA approved in the United States, we'd be allowed to bring it back for our own personal use. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if I got one, you know, bottle of aspirin, or even if I had two pills of aspirin, I'd be allowed to bring that into the United States. Um, which is how, it, you know, it has been for a long time. But the Bush administration says, no, you can't do that with the abortion pill. You can't even have a small amount for personal use. So Larry looks to his muse, his inspiration, Margaret Sanger, and says, well, what if we go to Europe, get these pills, and then intentionally alert U.S. Customs that we're flying back with them? And then we stopped, we get searched by federal agents, you know, maybe we'll get arrested. And we bring this case to all the way up to the Supreme Court to overturn this ban on this medication that could really expand abortion access. Because again, if you don't have to go physically to a clinic to get the procedure, you can take it at home. That's a huge expansion. Yeah. Um, so that's what Larry's plan is. But, you know, he needs to find a pregnant woman to do this because, yeah. you know, he can't get a prescription or get the abortion pill for himself the whole thing hangs on like a, getting a pregnant woman to sign up to do this. And that turns out to be, you know, one of the great challenges of Larry's plan, which has the that Ocean's Eleven feel, I think, to it, where it's like he's got to assemble this team. He's running around the country. But um, a, yeah, seeming, kind of a seemingly impossible <laughs> task to like, yeah, like to to find someone who's like not, you know, they have to be pregnant. They have to want an abortion. They have to be willing to fly with him to London, risk being arrested and then get their face on the news in an extremely hostile environment it's such a wild um i think you refer to it as or maybe they refer to it as trying to find a jane uh jane roe yeah they called it uh, the the jane roe for the 1990s so you know roe versus wade it was named after you know the woman whose pseudonym was jane roe and so they wanted a jane roe for the 1990s and yeah i mean not only is it like it's like okay there's this extremely hostile and violent environment that, you know, the everyone is living in around abortion access. Um, yeah, you've got to like be down for like shouting from the rooftops, like, hey, I want an abortion. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, being the public face of, you know, the, the effort to overturn this abortion pill ban. But also one of the crazy things to me was like, it had to be done so quickly. Like the abortion pill at that time could only be used through the end of the eighth week it's a little different now um you know some countries allow it up to i think 15 weeks other countries are 12 weeks you know i think we're trying to go back in the united states to a point where it would be actually about like seven weeks um which is you know extremely early but a lot of people don't even know that they're pregnant at that time but at, at that time that's that's what it was uh, because it was a new medication i think you know regulators wanted to be on the conservative side with you know a when it as it related to when someone could take it so so like yeah if you sign up you know if, if you're the perspective Jane Roe and you find out that you're you know a month pregnant you've just missed your period you only have a couple weeks to do the entire stunt to go to Europe to get the pill to fly back meet customs get stopped and then go all the way up to the Supreme Court so like that alone is like yeah. wild to me because I feel like it's a crazy timeline to pull off a stunt like this and then you add in all the other logistics um but yeah so that that's Larry's plan and um you know, I, I actually acquired a lot of his original uh, materials. I went up to Smith College in Massachusetts um, in their library there. There's the Lawrence Later archives. Uh, his wife had donated his you know life's work, his papers to the school um, when he passed away in 2006. And, you know, so I found original documents from his attorneys 
begging him to do literally anything else <laughs> yeah they're like this is a bad idea <laughs> yeah they're like you there's like you could be arrested you could be sent to jail to prison and like you're gonna be violating the law on camera like there's no argument for defense here especially given we you know who you are you know the law you know that this is illegal so you're like intentionally breaking the law in a very public way which is like obviously not advisable yeah so uh yeah that's the plan of, of how larry later cooks up this plan to overturn the uh ban on the abortion pill in the it's, early 90s it's funny to me that you say oceans 11 because i can visualize this in much the same like how they do the cinematic effects in that film where it's like they're getting on the plane and they do they do the swipe screen uh <laughs> he's uh in london getting the pills he's uh on a payphone uh snitching on himself <laughs> to customs <laughs> like <laughs> yeah it's just like you know as I, I mentioned earlier like I was really surprised when I found this story like I actually the way that I had come across it in my early research when I was looking into Mephisto and I was thinking what what's a story here I could build into a series and I found this story honestly as a footnote in an academic paper like you know footnotes are written really small and yeah I was like, wait, what is this? And then I started, you know, kind of pulling the string and I was like, oh my God, I've been, you know, the string led me to this vast web of activism. And I was, I was pretty blown away. And, and yeah, I, I couldn't believe I had never heard this story before. Yep. Not only because one, it's such an exciting and interesting story and, and the, and the plan is cool. It's a cool idea. Like, yeah. you know, but, <laughs> but uh, also it's important. It's like, it's, it's one of the main motivators to get that this is what gets this into the media some people had never even heard of uh mifepristone or uh are you for right they used to call it are you 486 after the manufacturer i believe and mm -hmm. uh this is like you know that, that that's one of larry's things is he's uh he's media savvy and he likes being uh in front of the camera so he's you know a lot of this is like because uh even though it it was not a full success uh because yeah, they they bring the, they get the pill here. Um, they breeze through the first judge, and he's like, "No, she should be allowed to have that." But they keep pushing it up to the Supreme Court. At which point, George Bush has uh, instated Clarence Thomas, and that you know he gets his hands on it. That's the end of that. Um, if you don't mind, I want to kind of rewind back a, a second when yeah. you were talking about the. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the group. They're the anti-abortion group led by Randall Terry. What are they called? Uh, Operation Rescue. Operation Rescue. So, <clears throat> Randall Terry, a man <laughs> with a dream. A dream <laughs> to someday be on the Phil Donahue show, in his own words. Uh, I found that to be funny. I mentioned that to a few people when I was listening to the podcast. You know, most people don't even know who Phil Donahue is. You know, if, if, I, think, <laughs> I think if you're under 35, it's unlikely that you... But uh, I think in the 90s, he was... I, I might be talking out of school here a little bit. I'm not crazy familiar with that, but I think he's like on the scale from like Jerry Springer to Oprah, he's kind of like around a Maury Povich type thing. So I kind of thought it was kind of funny that uh, Randall Terry, that like that was really his highest aspiration was to one day be on Phil Donahue and the God told him that he would be there. Um right. and I, I think it was Yeah, true. no, I mean, Randall, you know, Randall wanted media attention um he was he was very smart in his strategy where you know he said to me at one point you know politicians don't read the letters that are sent to them yeah um you know they don't uh return the calls if you you know call their office but they do watch the evening news and they do look at the front page of the newspaper and so randall and his you know, quest to potentially, you know, attempt to end abortion access in America and stage these, he said, if I stage massive protests, the news will come and they will show it on television and it will make it seem like there's a lot of people who are really upset about this and and politicians will pay attention. And, and so, yeah, I mean, he wanted, you know, in the, the late 80s and into the 90s, Phil Donahue was a massive, like, you know, afternoon talk show, like you said, like Oprah, like Jerry Springer, like he was right up there in terms of ratings, like they were in ratings races at that time. And so, you know, Randall wants to get, you know, one of the reasons he wants on Donahue is because he knows he's going to be reaching millions of people 
you know, all over the country and be in their living rooms and spreading his message to end abortion. And so, you know, to Randall's credit, he was incredibly media savvy. Um, I I was, yeah. He he did that by saying a lot of, uh, can I curse in this podcast? You can say whatever the fuck you want on this podcast. (laughs) He said a lot of inflammatory shit. Like he was intentionally being incredibly inflammatory because he knew that, you know, the media would want to cover it. I may I uh, bring a, a couple quotes up that really yeah. stood out to me that because um, you interviewed uh, Randall and uh, he seemed very uh, really open and pleased to be speaking with you. Like I, I get yeah. a little bit of the impression that Randall likes media. To, like you said, he's not not only is he yeah. good at it, I think he very much enjoys the attention. That's just me. I, you know, I don't know Randall personally. I agree. Uh, I, I would say after <laughs> talking to him for like five and a half hours, yes, he he loves media attention. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you talked to him for five and a half hours. Uh, you got a lot yeah. of quotes, and yeah, yeah, like like I said, he's a recurring character. He's still at it today. Uh, you you know, obviously because you were just talking to him not that long ago for five hours. Uh, yeah. Two of the quotes from Randall that really stood out to me were uh, one where he said the Dobbs decision overturning. Uh, Roe vs. Wade was equally as heroic as the Normandy landing in World War II, which I found to be quite a statement. And uh, the one that really got to me, of course, uh, uh, this is a this is a whole story unto itself. I won't go too far into it because it's not that important to the pill plot necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after he ma- manipulated one of his followers into trying to hand a human fetus in a plastic to go box to Bill Clinton. While Bill Clinton's out on a jog, uh, he's running for president at this time. Uh, he said that stunt was the same thing uh, that former running back for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, Emmett Smith's mother, would have done. I, <laughs> I, I just find that wild. But uh, so you spoke with him for five hours. What is your like? What is your take? Who like who is Randall Terry? What uh, is because I, I, I know, I know that I keep rambling, but I just want to say like sometimes I'm curious. Is like is he genuinely into this? Uh, does he care, or is he actually? Does he just want to be in the spotlight? Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know Randall told me, and we we play some of this in the last episode. Like he said, he's like, I don't care about women's health. I don't care. That's not why I do this. Like I want to end abortion. Period. And he's like, you know, people on, you know in the quote unquote pro-life movement who are like, let's introduce some legislation to like make it harder for clinics to operate because we care about women's health. Randall was like, bullshit. I don't, you know, you don't care about women's health. I don't care about women's health. I care about ending abortion. So, you know, Randall's in this to end abortion, his motivations, you know, he says that it, you know, God directed him to do this, um, that he believes that the Bible says, you know, um, that the God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And he interprets that, he interprets that to mean um, that God does not support abortion or wants it happening. Um, you know, but, but Randall loves, yeah, he loves media attention. You, you know, something I didn't include in the podcast, but came up during our conversations is, you know, I talked to him about like, what was his early life like? Um, and he, you know, grew up in Western New York in a Rust Belt town and he drops out of high school around age 16 this is in the 1970s. And he starts hitchhiking around the country with a guitar. And his goal is to get to California and to be a musician. And, oh, you know, as I would not of, have guessed that yeah, as he's <laughs> sort of hitchhiking around the country, you know, he's like hanging out with hippies, sort of new age, spiritual, uh, you know, folks. And he's like sleeping on the beach and in, in, in Texas, like on the Gulf of Mexico. And so you know, initially he just wanted to be famous, it seemed like to me, but the music career didn't work out. And so he comes back home to Western New York and he's working at an ice cream shop and some guy comes into the ice cream shop and, you know, is like, hey, do you want to learn about the Bible? And Randall's like, okay. And then he goes down this path. I mean, he was not raised particularly religious at all. Um, So yeah, I think that, you know, Randall loves to be in the spotlight. I think that had he, you know, and this is obviously me speculating, um, had he not found religion at this time in his life, he might have tried to be in the spotlight in a completely different way. I mean, it seems like, yeah. you know, 
maybe this was his route to get the fame and attention he wanted. And it just so happened to present itself as an opportunity, but, you know, had something else happen, you know, he might not have never gone down this path. So, um, you know, I think he's very motivated by attention and, um, you know, by fame in, in a big way. And, and as he said, he's like, it's not about women's health for me. It's about ending abortion, which, you know, I find it challenging to be able to separate the two, but uh, he's, he's somehow done it in his head. I, so I had to Google him. I was, uh, mm-hmm. it was, it had to be done. The photograph that uh, when you Google Randall Terry, the first one that pops up is a picture of him in a fur coat with a gold chain, not the image I expected to see it. Like I, really but it like but it all starts to kind of click a little bit more once i saw like saw him like smiling in a in a fur like kind of dressed like kid rock from like the 90s you know <laughs> and i was like okay i get it a little bit more uh, i think uh so look i'm not gonna sit here and uh badmouth randall terry all day like you know cl- clearly i don't agree with him when i would never dress like him i know i said that i wasn't gonna say anything more about it but one last thing I do want to bring up because it's just so it's a thing that people are more and more noticing and bringing up that there is such a long list of people who failed as entertainers, comedians, musicians that become right wing extremists because it is such a easier place to become a uh, famous person. So I, don't know, I guess right. fame is a powerful motivator. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like I said, like, you know, in, in researching, you know, in speaking to him and also researching his background and, and kind of fact checking, uh, you know, his, his life, so to speak. Um, yeah, like he wasn't raised like his, uh, he was raised Catholic, but like his, you know, parents were kind of the Catholics that go to church on Christmas and Easter, and that's it. Yeah. And so it's not like he was like, you know, steeped in, you know, evangelicalism from a a child and you know felt that this was an integral part of his life like like yeah he was a, 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 in the 1970s hitchhiking probably smoking weed you know playing the guitar hoping to make it to california and fails and then you know sees yeah. his his on-ramp here so yeah yeah i guess uh there was the his, his first big break was uh he went to an abortion clinic chained himself to uh, some probably some very expensive machine or some something like you know yeah like like the exam table like you yeah know, when you, if you go into a doctor's office you sit on the exam table like he and his buddies um this was in 1986 in Binghamton New York he you know goes in he he had become obsessed with this clinic he actually got an apartment in the neighborhood nearby so he could go over whenever he wanted very frequently to yeah. protest outside but he found that his protests, you know, it was a very small contingent uh, that he was with. It was maybe, you know, a dozen people max, uh, probably on some days, maybe two or three of them. And they were protesting outside this clinic and it wasn't really getting a lot of attention. It wasn't grabbing, you know, uh, you know, headlines and things like that. And so Randall realized he needed to go bigger. So yeah, him and his friends go into the clinic, you know, walk past the receptionist, um, go into down the hallway, into the exam room. They have these huge, you know, hunk, like hulking metal chains and they lock themselves to the exam room, um, to, you know, equipment, to chairs. And they're like, we're not getting, we're not leaving. And the police are called to get them out of there. The police say, you know, please leave now. <laughs> and they say no, and they refuse to get up. And so they have to get uh, bolt cutters to saw through the locks. And then even after they get the locks off, um, Randall, you know, his strategy at that time, and then also going forward was to go completely limp so that yeah. the protesters had to be physically carried out of the building. And so, you know, that first initial stunt, Randall gets on, the local news he gets on like whatever probably news 12 um for an evening segment and that's his first real taste of media attention yeah um and and that's his playbook and his mo going forward you know stage these outrageous stunts and really disrupt care so even though you know that day in 1986 randall didn't end abortion nationwide but he was able to disrupt that clinic enough that it couldn't function for hours and maybe somebody you know, who was supposed to go in for um, an abortion that day, or maybe even just get a birth, con- you know, prescription for birth control or have a regular exam, they were not able to get those services that day. Yeah. And, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe, you know, if you did show up for your appointment and you saw the police were there, 
you might not want to come back to that place. So, yeah. you know, it's unfortunately effective in in that sense where it's at least a disruption and, and potentially could deter people because it's frightening to them. Yeah. And once again, there's such an argument for allowing mifepristone into like so people don't have to <laughs> go through these traumatic nightmare experiences with these protesters. Um, but yeah, like I said, getting on the that first uh that taste of getting on the media that probably feels good. And then in Wichita, 30,000 people following you, that's power. That's, you know, and yeah. power is addictive, but back to Larry and Leona, uh, yeah. <laughs> Larry and Leona's attempt to bring the pill into the country. Like we said, it would have possibly worked as they uh, sued their way through the court system. However, a newly appointed for life Supreme court justice, uh, Clarence Thomas finally gets his hands on the case at the end at the same time, uh, Ellie Schmiel and Patricia Ireland have headed to Europe uh, with a completely different strategy. Uh, what was their plan? Yeah, so Ellie Schmiel, she's actually still at it. She's still the head of the Feminist Majority Foundation. She's in her 80s now. Um, but the Feminist Majority Foundation is, you know, a women's rights group. They advocate for all different kinds of causes, whether it's abortion rights or violence against women or registering, you know, more women to vote and run for office. Um, so Ellie's the leader of that group. And then Patricia at, at that time was the president of the National Organization for Women, or NOW now. Um, and yeah, they're they're like, okay, Larry, like media attention is great. You know, it's it's interesting to me. I feel like Randall and and Larry are kind of foils in that way, where they're kind of doing these outrageous media stunts to get attention, but albeit for completely different reasons and yeah. on the you know opposite sides of the same field. And um, but yeah, so Patricia and Ellie are like, okay, like media attention's great. We love that. But we also need actual policy change. Um, we need to persuade the European manufacturers of this drug who hold the patent to bring it to the United States market. And so they, um, you know, they actually had traveled to Europe several times over the course, I think, beginning in 1989, after the Bush administration institutes its ban. And they are trying to persuade the European European drug makers to submit an application to the FDA because they think that this will be, you know, the easiest and most direct way to get the pill approved in the United States. You know, no surprise here, pharmaceutical companies have a lot of money. They have lobbyists. They have lawyers. Like they can, if they really wanted to, you know, put their finger on the scale in the United States to try to pressure the U.S. government as, you know, a pharmaceutical lobby to bring this drug into the country. Um, but they say no. They're like, we see what is happening in the United States. It feels like maybe the U.S. is just, you know, too backwards here because of the violence, because of the harassment. Um, you know, anti-abortion activists um, actually were harassing employees in the parking lot in Paris of, you know, people who worked at this pharmaceutical company saying, you know, don't sell the pill. So, you know, in Europe, they're getting harassment too for being associated with abortion rights. And, and so, you know, Ellie and Patricia and as well as other women leaders are consistently going to Europe and, and trying to convince them that, hey, actually Americans would really welcome this drug and they would really like it. Um, but the European makers are like, it's just too messy. And, and also the, the CEO of the German company, he, he was a man uh, named Wolfgang Hilgar. Um, and he um, was personally opposed to abortion. He was Catholic and he, you know, he saw the opportunity to make money from the pill, which is why the company sold it. But yeah. he's like, I don't actually feel passionately about expanding this as much as possible. So he was like, no, we're not going to submit an application to the FDA. And, and so... You know, while Larry is kind of doing these daring stunts, um, Ellie and Patricia, who were allies with with Larry um, and were working with him, you know, they're doing the background policy stuff, greasing the wheels in the halls of power to try to move the ball forward. Um, but it still takes an extremely long time. You know, the the pill, the, the abortion pill is not eventually approved until September of 2000. And so like we, we were just talking about 1992, like, yeah. you know, the pills already been on the market for like, I think four years at that point. And it still takes an extremely long time. But yeah, they they had gone to Europe too. They'd taken, cause you know, this is the nineties. 
boxes of paper petitions, 115,000 petitions, individual pieces of paper, shipped them to Europe, brought them into their meetings. And so yeah. look at all the people that have signed these petitions wanting, you know, saying, allow this drug to come to the United States. And the company, you know, still said no. So, yeah. This uh, one thing that just um, just popped into my mind, too, because uh, this company also invented Allegra, the allergy yes. medicine and the anti-abortion. Uh, I don't know if it was one individual group or just I don't know how they managed to pull this it was, off. It was, but they are uh, the National Right to Life Committee, actually. Yeah. Oh, oh, the, oh the tolerant ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they managed to uh, they managed to threaten the release of a leg. A was obviously going to be one of the biggest money makers. They could, you know, one of the because at the time I was at like probably the the most advanced allergy medication that probably was coming yeah. out. And they're like, this is a billion dollar project. We're not going to because, uh, yeah, they were like. We will boycott you. We'll destroy Allegra if you dare to uh, submit an application to the FDA. So they backed off. Uh, like, it's incredible the kind of power these people were wielding through, uh, you know, threats. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. National Right to Life takes out a full page advertisement in USA Today, which, you know, is at that time was one of the biggest circulation newspapers in the country. And basically in that advertisement threatens, you know, the European makers of Allegra and is like, we will try to block your application to bring Allegra to the United States if you continue selling the abortion pill. And so, you know, there, from a business perspective, the abortion pill was, you know, it, it was a ticking time bomb. It was like, nobody wanted to touch it. Like, oh, if we, you know, you know, you know, the European makers had several different drugs in their portfolio. The abortion pill was just one tiny little piece. Like, you know, pharmaceutical companies don't just make one kind of medication. They make all kinds of medication, whether it's prescription or over the counter, whatever. Yeah. And yet, because they have this one drug that deals with abortion, um, it could cost them billions of dollars with Allegra. And so it, I think it just says, you know, how radioactive the issue of abortion is in the United States. I mean, even just recently, like, you know, after... Roe versus Wade was overturned, you know, there was conversations about Walgreens, you know, trying to make the abortion pill available without a prescription. Um, but then they got threats and they said, we're not going to do that. And, um, you know, so even today, you know, even though polls show that the majority of Americans do support abortion access, I mean, we can see that in recent elections. And since Roe has been overturned, when the issue is put on the ballot, it wins. Um, so even though like, you know, you have this evidence that like people support it, pharmaceutical companies are just like, it's too much drama and they care about their bottom line. Um, so they, they often don't want to wade into the issue, even, yeah. even though, you know, we've never lived in a world where abortion doesn't exist in one form or another, you know, the abortion pill theoretically could be a moneymaker because I think a lot of people who, um, want to terminate their pregnancies would rather take a pill than undergo a surgery, um, I would, I would imagine that almost everybody would prefer that choice. I... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think so. You know, I, I've never had an abortion. Uh, I've never been pregnant before. So, I, you know, I can't speak to it personally. But I imagine if, you know, I needed or wanted to get an abortion for some reason, yeah, I would probably choose to have a pill instead of go under anesthesia and have a surgery. Um, you know, I also think, like, look at the statistics, like 54% of pregnancy terminations in the United States today are done by the abortion pill. You know, it is the choice of many people. And I also think it, it speaks to the fact that like the pill is used to terminate early pregnancy. Like most people, you know, when they do find out and if they do not want to have or cannot have the child for whatever reason, they go as soon as possible to try to get, yeah. uh, you know, abortion medication. You know, as it relates to surgery, people actually, you have to actually wait longer because you have to wait until the fetus develops a little bit more for them to be able to safely remove all of it. And so like, it just doesn't kind of always make sense to me. I'm like, so you would rather like you people that are against abortion, you'd rather like eliminate the abortion pill, wait until like a fetus becomes more developed and then allow, you know, like, or maybe I guess they don't want it at all, but yeah, I don't know. It just yeah 
doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> well, and I guess to this, uh, I guess going back in time again, but also this uh, makes me makes me recall uh, there was a very famous doctor who uh, he was one of the only people that that would do late term abortions. Uh, that is almost always uh, because it's for the uh, it's like to save the life of the um, of the mother or. Perhaps like you, it's, I mean, there's all kinds of things like a, the child is possibly has, does, has not developed a skull or something where it's just, right. it just, it's, it's uh, just the humane and right thing to do. Uh, but <clears throat> so let's, so uh, I know we're kind of, we're jumping around in time, yeah. but <laughs> we're going way back in time now to uh, Bill Clinton is finally elected. He is outspokenly uh, pro-choice at this time. It appears as though things are going to take a turn for the better for the pro-choice movement. This, of course, infuriates uh, the anti-abortionists into a period of escalated violence. And we talked a lot about Randall, but Randall never really seemed to get his hands dirty um, exactly. You know, uh, we could say maybe he directed or, in, you know, encouraged others to do violence. Um, so possibly the most notable uh, violent anti-abortionist at this time is Shelley Shannon. Uh can you tell us about who Shelley Shannon was and what she did? Yes, yeah, so Shelley Shannon, um, she was a stay-at-home mom uh, in Oregon, and um, she'd moved around a lot, uh, both as a child. You know, she attends like 13 different schools by the time she's 12. Um, in high school, she gets involved with an older married man. She becomes pregnant. Um, she winds up having the child. She doesn't stay with that man. Um, she marries a military guy named David Shannon. Um, and since he's in the military, they move around quite a bit. Again, um, they finally settle in Grants Pass, Oregon. And, you know, Shelly's, you know, at home, she's looking to socialize outside the house a little, you know, maybe make some friends. I can ima imagine, you know, having some young kids being in a new town, being kind of isolated. And so she starts attending uh, services at non-denominational evangelical churches in the Grants Pass area. And this is in, you know, the I would say closer to the mid to late 1980s. And, um, it's there that she watches an Operation Rescue recruiting video, and she decides to become um, involved in the anti-abortion movement. She travels to Atlanta in the late 1980s with Operation Rescue to protest uh, the Democratic National Convention in Georgia. Um, you know, that... Uh, Actually, let me refocus. So she travels to Atlanta in the late 1980s with Operation Rescue to protest the Democratic National Convention. She's arrested several times there. She's, uh, you know, eventually serves some time in prison in Atlanta. And, you know, I think a, a potential historical era that we can now see is that uh, Atlanta's key road detention facility where she's housed decides to house these anti-abortion protesters together away from the general population. But in doing so, this gives them privacy. It gives them time to talk, to strategize. And coming from that prison in Atlanta, out comes um, what's referred to by the Department of Homeland Security as the Army of God Manual. Um, the Department of Homeland Security has characterized this group as a terrorist group. And, you know, Shelley is a member um, and it advocates for um, you know, assassinations of doctors. Um, it advocates for burning down clinics, for stalking, um, you know, really, you know, violent crimes um, uh, against people who work in abortion care. And so Shelley, you know, protests, she goes to Wichita and protests uh, during the Summer of Mercy with Operation Rescue. But, you know, for at some point, for Shelley, you know, protests are not going to cut it anymore. And she begins setting fire to several uh, clinics throughout the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then, you know, after Clinton is elected, um, you know, he then appoints Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, within 10 days of Ginsburg being confirmed to the court, Shelley travels on a Greyhound bus from Oregon to Oklahoma City. She gets out, she rents a car, she drives to Wichita, Kansas. Uh, she has a wig and she stands outside George Tiller's clinic, uh, you know, George Tiller provided, uh, was that doctor we mentioned earlier who provided abortions later in pregnancy for, you know, either to save the life of the mother or because the fetus would not survive outside the body. Um, 
And she goes there um, with the intent to assassinate Tiller. Uh, he leaves the clinic at the end of the day and he's um, in his you know truck and Shelly starts approaching the car and he thinks that she's going to hand him, you know, that she, he had protesters there all the time, that he's, you know, she's just another one of these people that's going to hand him a pamphlet, um, you know, condemning abortion. And I guess he was pretty fed up with it because he sticks his middle fingers up, both of them, gives, flips her the bird saying, fuck you. <laughs> and it's at that exact moment when he raises his hands into the air with his middle fingers flying that Shelly reaches into her purse, grabs her gun and aims at his heart to shoot him. Um, his arms, I interviewed the prosecutor in this case, and she said that his the way his arms were positioned probably saved his life. Um, he you know, becomes filled with bullet, bullet holes. Shelly gets back into her rental car. Uh, a nurse was able to write down her license plate. Um, she drives to Oklahoma City where she's then apprehended. And she tells the police if there ever was a justifiable homicide, that would have been it. Um, you know, she has no remorse. Uh, she told pretty much everyone that she could, that she shot Tiller, that she was proud of it. Um, and she winds up getting sentenced to 10 years in prison for attempted murder. Uh, and she actually gets longer, uh, 20 additional years for arson of multiple, I think it was like at least six to eight clinics. I can't remember the exact number, but um, yeah, she gets, you know, 20 years and for that. And she was released from prison in 2018. So she is now out on the street. Oh, wow. And um, yeah. And so she, you know, she was one of the, you know, <clears throat> most violent extremists in the anti-abortion movement. I do want to say a, a couple of things. Uh, one, obviously, I am not stoked that uh, Dr. Tiller was shot. That is not, yeah. that's not, but what I am, what what does make me feel stoked and I think is, is so kind of cool about the story is that the fact that he was giving her two middle fingers saved his life because the bullets entered his arms instead of uh, hitting him like center mass, like which was mm -hmm. her intention. I actually have a friend uh, who was shot in a robbery and survived uh, same. He wasn't given the middle finger, but uh, <laughs> he put his arm out uh, like to try to, you know, I don't know. I guess it's like human instinct. I don't know what, what he did, but. Right he put his arm out and the bullet entered into his arm instead of his chest and bounced off his bone. And so wow. that's how he, so he lived. So I don't know if there's a takeaway here, guys, if you're getting shot at, put your arms out. Don't, don't listen to me. That, uh, that's, that's bad advice. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's kind of mind blowing and um, you know, Shelly, uh, you know, Shelly does that that summer that Ginsburg is confirmed to the court. But earlier that exact summer, a different abortion provider uh, was murdered, actually successfully yeah. killed. And, um, you know, his name was Dr. David Gunn, and he worked in Pensacola, Florida. And, a, you know, a year before Operation Rescue had been across the border in Alabama, across the border from Pensacola, and they were handing out... Um, wanted posters oh, with yeah. his face on it and with his name with his address home and work um so yeah like you know you, you mentioned earlier like you know randall terry you know he doesn't seem to get his hands really dirty um in in it when it comes to potentially pulling a trigger um but he definitely is in you know encouraging violence and i asked randall about this in the show i said you know when when doctors are killed like you say you want to remain nonviolent, but like you know what your your rhetoric and kind of you know the materials you hand out seems pretty violent and he's like you know i condemn the murder of doctors but then in the next breath he says but they reaped what they sowed yeah these guys were mass murderers and you know they'll have to be judged by god and so yeah i mean that's kind of the state of what abortion access was like in the mid 90s it, the following year it becomes the most deadly year on record to date in american history for accessing abortion multiple people were murdered as well as shot like you know some person was just walking in with her friend not even to get an abortion it was to um get you know health care uh, uh you know birth control whatever and she was shot uh walking into a clinic so it, it becomes a really dangerous time in the mid yeah. and and i'm not going to uh say one way or another whether i think he is deliberately or was deliberately 
uh, inciting. But, you know, um, one could argue that he was uh, perpetrating stochastic terrorism uh, by getting others to do what he didn't want to do himself because he wanted to stay in the limelight, not in the in the prison cells. But back to Larry, uh, just (laughs) back to Larry. All right. Smuggling the pill into the United States was not his only plan. He has secretly created his own lab in uh, New York state and recruited his own chemist to to develop an American version of uh, mifepristone. I have the hardest time saying uh, (laughs) pharmaceutical names. Like I, if, like whatever it's like the real name i'm like uh yeah honestly same the- like <laughs> you don't hear it in the podcast but i had to do many takes to say mifepristone uh i've, I've gotten good, better at it now but it, it was a learning experience <laughs> mifepristone it's easier to say the other one uh the uh ua what are you 486? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'm falling off the tracks here and I didn't want to. We had said, obviously, like uh, the Population Council and Larry had sort of diverged. They were uh, kind of in a more covert and more uh, kind of professional, maybe you might want to say, like more, a little bit more serious, uh, avoiding media attention. And Larry's over here kind of also, I think, practically committing another serious crime uh, however uh larry you know he has he did it though like they they made an american version of the pill uh population council managed to get a patent on their own uh american version of the pill neither of these things are, of course are approved by the fda but larry and the population council managed to finally come together uh in a lot of ways in their separate efforts to create an american version of the pill how did they finally after 12 years of struggling uh managed to get the pill approved by the fda yeah so the population council it's this group that um works in research around you know reproduction they actually were the group to help bring the iud to market which is a form of long-term birth control that lots of people use today um and so the European company, when they're trying to bring Allegra to market, you know, as we mentioned before, they're they're getting all this like heat from anti-abortion groups. And they're like, we're done with this. We're unloading the patent to the abortion pill. We don't want to deal with it anymore. We're done. They give it to the population council and the population council, you know, then gets to work of, you know, finding a manufacturer, doing, you know, all the things you need to do to actually bring a drug to market. Um Larry is, you know, he has his own version, as you just mentioned, that he creates in a secret lab in a warehouse uh, in a small town outside of New York City. Again, when I was looking into the story, I was like, wait, there's a Breaking Bad element? Are you serious? He did an Ocean's <laughs> Eleven and a Breaking Bad. It's, yeah. <laughs> he seems so cool. And he was like a, and he was a World War II veteran, right? Like he fought like in yeah. uh, France or something. Yeah, that, yeah, he sounds like he sounds like such a rad guy, man. Yeah. I can't believe I, I can't believe that I never heard of Larry later until like I'd heard your story about Larry later. Like, how could someone this yeah. rad be like not a name I know? Anyway, right. I'm sorry, so I didn't mean to interrupt. Forgotten to history, yeah, but yeah. So he like what he does with this secret lab is like once he comes back from from Europe with Leona Benton, you know, they attempt to overturn the pill, uh, excuse me, the abortion pill ban. Um, by challenging in the courts, they fail ultimately in 1992. But Larry had secretly kept an extra dose of the abortion pill. You know, I spent a year reporting on the story. I have no idea how he did this. I talked to his attorney that represented him at the time. I talked to Leona's attorney. I talked to his wife. Like, we don't know, but he was able to, you know, secretly smuggle in an extra dose of the pill and he still has it, you know, after they lose this court case. And so he, you know, he'd actually been kind of laying the groundwork for this secret lab for quite a while. And um, yeah, he finds like 500 square feet of raw space. It's sandwiched in between a plastics plant and a vintage car mechanic. He's like, this is perfect. If I need equipment, supplies delivered, nobody's going to blink an eye because, you know, where I am. Um, I'm actually the first journalist to uncover the location of this lab. Like it was lost to history before this. Like I found it 
going through his old papers uh, in Smith College. I wasn't even really sure it still, you know, those papers existed. But yeah, he like outfits this lab and then he hires two chemists. Uh, one, this guy named Dr. David Horn, he worked at Columbia University. You know, he was an expert in, in this kind of stuff of being able to synthesize uh, chemicals to make medication. Um, but Dr. Horn, like, yeah, he works at Columbia University. He doesn't have time to, like, work in the lab full time. So Larry's got to find, like, another guy that can be, like, the boots on the ground, the day-to-day -day guy. And so he finds this doctor, uh, and he gives him the pseudonym Dr. X. And I actually was able to identify him, and I spoke with him on the phone, but uh, he said that he did not want his identity revealed because uh, he's still concerned about anti-abortion attacks. Um, but yeah, they basically break down in this tiny lab in a warehouse, the exact chemical composition for the abortion pill. Cause like, you know, it was kind of like, you know, what's it, there's a formula to medication. Like, you know, David Horton said, you know, like what's the recipe with Coca-Cola? Like you need to know what the formula is in order to make it. Yeah. Um, they're able to do it. And Larry you know, while the population council is waiting to get everything off the ground, Larry's like, we got to keep this issue in the news. We got to maintain a momentum. So he, you know, makes this replica, this first American made abortion pill. And he starts, um, he actually gets uh, the, his, he actually gets uh, a blessing from the FDA to conduct research trials. And that information then can be given to the population council to bolster its application to the FDA. So by the time it actually that does, you know, there's it's a years long process thereafter, but by the time it actually does get approved, you know, there's so much research and studies that shows that this medication is safe, that it's effective, and that women actually prefer it to, you know, having a surgical abortion. Um, but yeah, like, again, like, the fact that like, you know, part of the application to the FDA included like this research that like comes from like this pill that was initially developed in the secret lab. I, again, I'm like, wow, like this is so badass. And like, this is such a cool yeah. piece of American history that I didn't know about. And um, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, how it, how it winds up getting over the line, you know, the population council, you know, they're the official ones to, to, you know, bring it across the line they had some issues along the way they had like brought in this investor and it turned out like he did like a shady land deal in North Carolina and then he's got to get kicked off the project and they're suing each other and it yeah it, I, I I remember when I learned about that I was like are you serious like it's taken all this time and this like one dude fucks it up for yeah. everybody. <laughs> and but yeah but then finally like literally a few weeks before the election between Al Gore and George W. Bush, which we all know how that turned out, yeah. um, literally six weeks before the pill finally gets approved, I think that had it not gotten approved at that time, we probably might not even have it today. So yeah, it was the last the last moments of Bill Clinton's presidency, like the yeah, and yeah, oh god, oh my god, what a journey of <laughs> you know. But <laughs> I do have to say, just to everyone listening, like we have left out so much uh, this is a, this is a great series and i have to highly recommend everybody uh to go check out the pill plot hosted by tj Raphael. it's part of uh uh the cover-up how is it how does that work why is why is it part of the cover-up yeah so um it's just kind of a thing that sony did i don't <laughs> i don't okay. really know like i was like okay yeah the cover-up i guess is a series that you know, every season is a different story. So season two is the pill plot. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it looks at like kind of hidden pieces of history or, you know, hidden kind of like scandals and things like that. And so, you know, obviously this one is a hidden piece of history that I, I don't think a lot of people know. And, and yeah, I mean, if, if you're still listening to the podcast at this point and you're interested, I would encourage you to listen to the full series. Like, like you said, there's so much more that, you know, goes into the actual plot and it it really feels like an action movie um and it, it blows my mind that it's all actually true on top of it <laughs> like oh you my think god that somebody it write this should be it. a movie it should be a movie <laughs> you just gave me an idea i don't know if i can actually pull this off but man i would love to uh try to see if i could turn this into a screenplay yeah like, I mean, because yeah, it should, should be. I mean, so, so Sony, you know, they they try to option 
podcasts all the time so you can hit them up and see if uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can uh, oh, get it yeah. you know i I, uh, I no longer work with sony they laid me off a week after the show came out so oh, bastards. Uh, you know <laughs> yeah no that's just part of the podcasting right now there's lots of uh there yeah. had been lots of layoffs but it's okay i actually signed a contract in late december with uh one of the largest podcast production houses in the world and i'm currently reporting on my next series which will come out later this year so i landed on my feet Ooh, which i all... cannot i cannot <laughs> wait well that that leads me to my final and most important question which is um where can people like find you follow you uh check out your work like uh i know you have other stuff out there and uh just i'm sure people would love to check it out so uh I don't know why I yeah. keep making this question yeah. longer and I'll, longer. I'll, <laughs> I'll, pl I'll plug myself. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it nowadays at TJ Raphael. And that's spelt like the Ninja Turtle or the painter. Um, or you can follow me on Instagram at TJ Raphs, R-A-P-H-S. Um, or check out my website at tjraphael.com. Um, you know, I have a form you can fill out where you'll be updated, you know, when I release a project. Um, you know, the next uh, thing that I'm working on that'll come out later this year, I can't talk too much about it, but I can say that it, it relates to what I have, what has been called uh, to me, um, a baby selling operation run by, run by one of the nation's most powerful institutions. Um, so I've been doing um, about nine months so far of research into that, and I'll be reporting on that for the next year, and I'll be releasing that as a series, um, as well as I'm editing um, a new true crime podcast about the son of Chicago's greatest mafia hitman and, you know, his life growing up in the mafia. So I'm working on that. Um, I'm also working on a couple other projects. So yeah, my website, you can sign up to be kind of alerted when my stuff comes out. And, um, you know, I, I hope you listen to the pill plot. Um, if you like it, leave a rating and review. If you don't, please do not leave a rating and review. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, you can also check out, you know, one of my first podcasts, Biohacked Family Secrets. You know, that's a crazy story too. My uh, college friend took a 23andMe test and found out that her biological father was actually a anonymous sperm donor and she has 150 siblings. And yeah, um, and that's kind of where the series kicks off. And then we go into a lot of other crazy places with uh, genius experiments, um, with, you know, lawsuits about wrongful life, um, you know, deaths of donors, um, you know, questions about shame, at people buying sperm on Facebook. Um, it becomes really crazy. So wow. I would check that one out as well. Biohacked Family Secrets. Okay, I'm going to check it out. <laughs> I, I i know i knew that you had made i i had, I had seen it I, I saw like biohacked with your name on it but mm -hmm. um i just i haven't listened to it so i didn't even know that's what it was about i was just like it just the word biohacked sounds so cool i was like i'll probably like this <laughs> but now i'm like i mean i'm definitely like this is on my yeah, list. It's it's wild. Like when my friend Amber, you know, she was a college classmate of mine. Like we, you know, we're not super close. I hadn't seen her honestly in almost like a decade. And like we reconnected and we're hanging out. And I was like, what's new with you? And she's like, oh, I just found out my dad's not my dad. And I probably have 150 siblings. And I was like, whoa. whoa. I was like, can I record you? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm a nosy journalist. And yeah, and then I actually wound up over the course of five years working on that story with her. So um, that's a crazy one to check out. And uh, yeah, the baby selling thing that's going to come out uh, late 2024 will, I think, also be pretty crazy. So yeah. All right, guys. While we're waiting on the new one, go check out <laughs> Pill Plot and Biohacked. And TJ, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very busy. I know you've got like a really important uh, source you have to talk to like in a few minutes. Yes. So I know I got to let mm -hmm. you go. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, and I hope you can enjoy the great weather and the uh, awesome weekend. Thank you, too. I really appreciate you having me. And um, this was really fun. And uh, if you ever want me to come back. I would be happy to do it. So, and thank you to your listeners for listening. So yeah, thanks. <laughs>